Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice but really just sell products to earn commissions. Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our Fearless Finance advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit, and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code Pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code Pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where a woman from the right and a woman from the left accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. This is Sarah Holland from the left and Beth Silvers from the right. We're happy to have everyone on another episode of Pantsuit Politics post some game-changing election results in Nevada and South Carolina. Before we jump into this episode, we'll we'll be discussing those election results as well as um, education policy in the suit. We wanted to ask everybody to sign up for our email list where you'll get every new episode of Pantsuit Politics delivered directly into your inbox as well as some unique content that we only share over email. You can sign up um, at the top of our Facebook page. It's a pinned post as well as our Twitter feed. Um, We'd also love for everyone to check out our new website at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com where you can become a supporter of Pantsuit Politics. Um, You know, it takes a lot of money and time to run the show, and we have been so incredibly grateful for many of the listeners who have made donations. You can also make like an ongoing monthly donation if you're one of those people who listen to all eight episodes a month and you are our favorite type of people. And we have one special thank you in particular today, Beth. 
Yes, we want to thank Lauren for her donation. Um, you know, we are always just overwhelmed by the amount of support and encouragement we get for the show. So thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, we really appreciate it. So in today's episode, in the pearls, we're going to talk about Nevada and South Carolina. Big days, big weekend. Yeah, it was stressful this weekend. I'm not going to lie. Um, maybe we'll start with Nevada because I feel like there's less craziness to talk about in Nevada. Yeah, I, so I wasn't stressed. I was feeling it. I'm going to be honest. Well, and I knew you were, and it looked like from the polling that you were right to be. I mean, it was close. Like, we should say that it was a close race, but Hillary Clinton, as expected, uh, pulled out a victory, and and the, the numbers coming out of the exit polling look very good for her going forward, mm-hmm. too. So I think that that's an encouraging sentiment, but... But Super Tuesday is coming, and I don't, I, you know, there was a lot of sort of sounding the the death knell this weekend um, for the Bernie Sanders campaign, which is odd because the week before it was like Hillary Clinton is in crisis. So <laughs> I think we should be careful about taking too much from each contest until we really get into the meat of the primaries, which is coming right up. Well, I think what's the biggest problem for Bernie at this point is he only got about 22% of the black vote, which is problematic moving forward. It's an incredibly important part of the Democratic coalition, especially in South Carolina. I think another problem for, and my husband brought this up today, I thought it was a really good point. Another problem for Bernie is that he just doesn't have, I think, really the roster of surrogates that Hillary has which is when you move into Super Tuesday and there's, you know, you can't just pour all your effort into New Hampshire or Iowa and you really have to spread yourself um, among several different states. I think he has a bigger problem there. I do want to make sort of, even though I'm obviously happy with the results as a Hillary supporter, I do want to make sort of a plea, um, especially to our young Bernie supporters, one very close to our heart, Brian, who's a big follower on Twitter. And I just want to say, listen, I can speak for myself. I've been there. I was incredibly disheartened. I've confessed my age by saying that I was a deniac. And I was really disappointed with how that went. And I think that really, if you talk to most people, um, most passionate political people, they especially Democrats, can kind of share this, well, I love Dean or, you know, except for the Barack Obama people, it turned out real well for them. <laughs> but, you know, moving back sort of in time, every generation – I think kind of goes through a they feel like they have this revolutionary candidate who's going to change things and it doesn't always turn out how they expected. And I just want to make a plea like, please don't give up on the process. I, if it, I know it can feel disheartening to feel like it's this establishment old school and the system's not changing. And I really, really can identify with that. But at the same time, like, don't give up. Don't give up on politics. Don't give up on the system. There's still change to be had. It might not be as big or as quick as you'd hoped, but we still need you involved. And don't give up on your candidate. I mm-hmm. mean, it's not over yet. And I know that all the super delegates have lined up behind Hillary Clinton. That can change. So, Well, and who's however, to say Bernie's journey's over even if he's not the candidate? I mean, he could be – like, it's not like he's going to drop out of politics. I mean, I think he – moving forward, I think he'll have a role to play that'll be important. And, you know, I think that's – it's not over. It's not over. This contest makes both of them better. Mm-hmm. I think they both keep getting better. The roles of their spouses in this contest are fascinating to me. I love learning more about Jane Sanders. I think mm-hmm. she's amazing. 
I think Bill Clinton is kind of Hillary's biggest liability at this point. I mean, he has become kind of a troll, right? Like he just I don't know. Is, I think that's press too. I think the media just likes that story. Yeah, I but, think I he's mean, still he a very not be strong. Compa- he should not be comparing the Bernie supporters to the Tea Party. He should not do that. No, I mean, I think that he he. I, I, but I still think in the grand analysis, if I'm, am I just going to sit Bill on the bench? Heck no. I've been to, I mean, like he came and did stuff for Allison Grimes and I hadn't been around him in person for so long. And he's still just so unbelievable in that setting. Even if he, you know, he's an ex-president, so he mouths off when he shouldn't, no doubt. And he's not careful because, I mean, I mean, he, he needs to understand there's more at stake. But I mean, I still think in the grand analysis, he's a, sur- he's a surrogate you want. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to watch. It's especially interesting for me to watch as someone who doesn't have any particular passion about either of these people. I do consistently feel surprised by sort of the level of vitriol directed at her. So I have a quick story about that from Twitter today. Um, Over the weekend, I tweeted a picture of my porch in Kentucky because it was beautiful weekend. I mean, it was beautiful this weekend. Crazy weather. And um, I'm reading Rebecca Tracer's book, Big Girls Don't Cry, that you've discussed several times on the show. And um, I just, so you could see the the cover of the book in my photograph. And I said something like, oh, it's a beautiful day in Kentucky to sit outside and read and try to not have anxiety about South Carolina. Well, so someone who doesn't follow us, I'm pretty sure is not a pantsuit politics listener. Um, And I, and I learned from her timeline is very dedicated Trump supporter. Um, retweets the photograph with something like when girls don't cry over dead soldiers in Benghazi, it's colder than Hitler or something. And I'm like, wow, how did we get so quickly from like iced tea on my patio to Hitler? This is really interesting. So um, I engaged this person a little bit and this is like the third time we've had somebody just really go after Hillary Clinton in one of our um, social media platforms and a like Trump supporter who doesn't seem to follow us generally. I would like to also add. Yeah, that's been a consistent theme as well. But it just, you know, I I was having a conversation with this person. I found it interesting because it was almost like I'm defending Hillary Clinton and I don't mm-hmm. have any attachment to Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's just I I'm just surprised by even though it's been going on for decades now, I'm surprised by the very sincere vitriol that that gets directed toward her mm-hmm. and it was, I, I kind of chimed in later because i was just it was the what does it matter quote which people love to take out of context like she was really like I, I just the 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 suspension of reality in which you would have to believe that a presidential candidate would go before congress and make the argument that the deaths of american soldiers don't matter is befuddling to me it's not well, I what said, she, not what I, she was saying. I said to this person, like, I understand having questions about Benghazi. I don't understand believing that she or anyone else wanted people to die. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. But hey, speaking of the suspension of reality, <laughs> um, that's maybe an appropriate segue <gasps> to South Carolina, which was 
um, maybe a record level of cluster, even oh. for South Carolina. So in the days leading up, we had Nikki Haley's endorsement of Marco Rubio. We had George W. Bush and Barbara Bush there campaigning for Jeb. Um, we had lawsuit threats going back and forth between Trump and Cruz, and then Trump's spat with the Pope. <laughs> Every time All you of- say that, it's never oh, less insane. The Pope part is really what sends me into giggles. All of that notwithstanding, Trump won handily. I mean, it wasn't even close. And I have to say that I was really surprised because I thought this was Ted Cruz's state. Yeah. And I'm not sure. Like, I'm going to say, despite all of my sadness generally about everything that transpired in South Carolina, I am very pleased to have been wrong about that because mm-hmm. I think that it sends a very clear signal that Ted Cruz is probably going to be winding down. Yeah. If he can't win in South Carolina... He didn't even come in second, right? I mean, it was close with Rubio for second, but he was third. And so that makes it seem to me that Ted Cruz's path forward is narrower Mm -hmm. um, than it may have seemed at one time. But I mean, Trump was like way, way ahead. And he's looking way, way ahead in polling for all the future states. So, like, I don't know what to say, y'all, except that I'm I'm thinking that he's going to be the nominee. Yeah, I mean, that's the... So in my head, I kept thinking, oh, well, we'll get behind, we, like, I'm a Republican, but let's just say, as a nation who is rooting, I feel like most of us are rooting that Donald Trump not be the nominee. Okay, so we'll get behind a, the establishment candidate, whoever that may be. And I just kept saying, thinking in my brain, like, okay, well, you know, they'll start, they'll start stacking up delegates and then the other people drop off and they'll get, and I just, that, in my head, that's just what was happening. And then... At some point I thought, but wait, if Donald Trump keeps winning by a lot, even, I don't, the math doesn't work. <laughs> sort of the math equation of just, he's just going to have a lot of delegates. And isn't there an argument that he's doing particularly well, even with him and Cruz, like he's doing well in these winner-take-all states. I mean, he's just going to have the most delegates. He's just going to have the most delegates. I think that's right. I mean, Chuck Todd said to Marco Rubio on Meet the Press today, we're recording on Sunday, um, like, when are you going to win a state? You have to win a state. Like, you have to win, not have this moral victory, not get a second or third that you talk about as though it was, you know, your inauguration. You have to win. And I just don't see that happening. Now, the entire party apparatus has picked Marco Rubio. Right. right? Um, Jeb Bush dropped out basically as the results were being announced in South Carolina. And I have to say that that was so painful for me to watch. And it doesn't get any less painful with every sort of recap I read, because I just think he's a good person. I I mean, I understand that people may have disputes with his policies. He was not a good candidate. But I said to my husband several times, like, I think Barack Obama was a phenomenal candidate. And like, not so great of a president. Now, we can dispute that. But that's my take. And I look at Jeb and think, you are not a good candidate, but I think you would actually be a really good president based on the things that I value. And so this was just really sad to me. I thought that his concession, not his concession, but his suspension speech was very classy. I love the way he talks about his wife. I frankly mm-hmm. think he seemed relieved. You know, I, yeah. we said it. We said in one of our first episodes that maybe his heart just hasn't been in this, and I think that might be true. I think it was incredibly hard for him. 
I think he deserved better in a lot of ways than what happened in all of this. I still blame Right to Rise and Mike Murphy and some of the people behind his campaign for not doing their candidate any justice, starting with that stupid exclamation point. I was just thinking that his heart wasn't in it and the exclamation point was not fooling anyone. No. And I mean, it just that is like a great visual symbol of how disturbed he was by the people doing his political strategy but well and here's what i thought like okay so here was my brain sort of in the moment i'm like oh jeb bush dropped out okay so rubio's got second bush dropped out like they're really gonna rally and then i looked and i realized that you still have Cruz, Kasich, and ben ben carson why up splitting the vote like what are you doing if you're gonna have a shot in hell of beating trump what are you why why The other thing is, there is such an assumption that all, as those folks drop, all those votes go to Rubio. I don't think that's true. Yeah, that's really a good point. I really don't. I think that people are way overestimating the draw of Marco Rubio. Now, maybe as as there is more panic mounting, you know, people go to Rubio. but, But I don't think you rally a party out of fear. Like, Trump is rallying people because they are excited about Trump. Well, it's fear-based, too, though. Let's not kid ourselves. It's a different kind of fear, though. Yeah. Like, I guess what... what, It's not a pragmatic fear. It's an emotional fear. The Rubio thing is everyone going, well, you got to vote against Trump. So vote for Rubio to vote against Trump. That just doesn't move people the way that voting for Trump moves people, right? So I I don't know what's going to happen here. I mean, maybe Rubio eventually pulls this out, but it is really hard for me to see that. So he sent an email out to supporters today looking for donations, and it compares Rubio to Harry Potter and and Trump to Voldemort. Not okay. Not okay for me. It's a lengthy analogy where, like, Voldemort is defeated over time because of the Horcruxes or something. And I, I, I'll i be honest, it's been a long time for me with Harry Potter, so I might not fully appreciate all the thought that was put into this. But I guess that's their strategy, right? He gets weakened over time, and then finally it's a one-on-one, and the boy wizard triumphs. Again, if I were working for Margaret Co. Rubio, I would probably not want to compare him to the boy wizard. But anyway... That's where we are on the Republican side. I mean, and Beth, what are let's we have some Twitter followers concerned about your emotional well being. I appreciate I'm also, them. What are you going to do if Trump is the nominee? Like legitimately? Well, I legitimately am not gonna vote for him. I mean, that's where I am. And I and as far as the party, I'll be anxious to see how the party responds. You know, yeah. I read again over the weekend a summary of the 2012 Republican autopsy Mm -hmm. and all of the things it, it like is so stupid and ironic to read that report sitting in 2016 that it almost makes me cry. Um, so what, what the party does in response to a Trump nomination, I have no idea. I'm, I'm, fascinated to see what takes place at the convention this year and here's the thing at this point there's nothing to be done because the the whole premise that is behind donald trump is that the system is rigged the party's been a failure and screw it all 
So I think the more the the apparatus gets behind Rubio, I think it might hurt him, mm. you know? And I think that if we have some kind of brokered convention, I think that the grassroots stays home in November. Mm. So I don't know what the party's supposed to do at this point. I mean, I, I just think probably going to lose the election. I also am coming around to the very real possibility that Donald Trump could po- perhaps win a general election. No. I mean... No. I would like to say absolutely not, but I'm not so sure. No I, way, but the country that elects Barack Obama twice elects Donald Trump. Yeah, I hope you're right about that, but yeah. I don't feel so confident. So After reading Kristen Sultan Anderson's books about young voters, like I'm just not not worried. Well, I'm glad that you feel that way. I I'm, feel I feel very I feel pretty strongly that he could not win a general election. I'm I'm just trying to uh, not let my emotional health become compromised here. So we have the Kentucky caucus coming up. Um, yeah, my stepdad's like super psyched about it. Like my, some of my Republicans. I'm a little jealous. I mean, I can't go because I'm a Democrat. So I'm, I'm a little jealous. I would have liked to see what a caucus was like. I'm really excited about it. And so I'll be showing up for Kasich in in that scenario. And we'll see what happens. Um, there's... Somebody Kasich needs to is put not some... even being talked about right now in, in the like major news media coverage. It's Somebody like needs Kasich to put some exist. muscle on Ben Carson. Just some muscle. There needs to be muscling. Like, All what the, are well, you nobody's doing? even worried about Ben Carson. They're worried about Kasich. They want Kasich out now so that Rubio can just be anointed. And I think that's nuts. I mean, I think Kasich is a better candidate than Rubio for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really insulting to young people and to people of diverse backgrounds to just decide that Marco Rubio's demographics make him the right candidate. I don't know. I, yeah. I don't want to get off on too much of a side track. But anyway, so I'm showing up for Kasich in Kentucky and then watching from there and hoping that you know, something good happens along the way. And if it doesn't, then I'll look at whatever my options are come the general election. But I can tell you, I'm not, I'm not going to be a Trumpkin at any point. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <It's a> nope. <laughs> so before we move on out of the pearls, we're going to compliment a member of the quote unquote other side. Although we really need to find a new verbiage for that because we don't, we, we are all on the same side. This is the argument the nuanced argument of pantsuit politics, but you know, for ease, for ease of description's sake, you want to start Beth? Sure. And I think mine pushes this a little bit because it's not really, I mean, typically I am complimenting a Democrat, but today I would like to compliment someone from the green party. So have you read anything about Jill Stein? A little bit. Okay. Well, so I found her Twitter feed and I think she's fascinating. Dr. Jill Skabine is a green activist. She's actually running for president Mm -hmm. with the green party this year. She's a medical doctor. She's, she's serious about environmental health. She's up in Massachusetts. I would strongly encourage you to check out her website and her Twitter feed. I just love people stepping up, Mm -hmm. you know, like we can talk all day about how the two party system's broken. We don't like it. I think we all particularly don't like it this year, but here's a person who's doing something. And however long shot a third party run is at this point, I think that people like Jill Stein and Gary Johnson are like chipping away at it over time. And eventually that's going to make a dent. And, um, I also just, I, I'm not a single issue person. And that's part of why I think Hillary Clinton's new, I'm not a single issue candidate kind of speaks to me, mm-hmm. but I like people who are really passionate about something. And so, um, 
I'm sure that I would not agree with Dr. Stein on most issues, but I'm really interested in what she's doing and um, my hat's off to her. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give a shout out to your boy, Jeb. Thank you. Today. I, you know, (laughs) I think what really bothers me with both Kasich, the discussion of Kasich and Jeb Bush is this whole, well, Kasich defunded Planned Parenthood and he's the enemy. Let's not, let's not confuse ourselves. Or Jeb Bush did right, stand your ground laws and such and such. This list of of decisions they made and that means they're the enemy. It really bothers me. I don't think it serves anybody. There are some decisions Jeb Bush made um, as governor of Florida that I would wholeheartedly agree with and same with Kasich. But they're still human beings. And I think in the grand analysis, um, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I think Jeb Bush, you know, f- definitely from what I saw on the circus, I really like to see, I really liked seeing him as this just f- for real person. And I do think he seemed to have a lot of integrity and to, and you just, and I did feel, I don't want to, I feel like it's sort of patronizing to say I felt sorry for him, but I had a lot of sympathy for what I felt like was he kind of was following the rules and doing what he was supposed to. And then in sort of the same way I've felt about Hillary Clinton from time to time, like you follow rules, you do what you're supposed to. And then all of a sudden there's just somebody like throwing a bomb into the room and you're supposed to be like, what? And I think in a very tough scenario, he handled it with a lot of integrity and um, also the whole police clap made me laugh. So sorry. I'm sorry about your luck, Jeb. And go take some well-deserved rest. Yeah, I think Jeb is also just Slate has a really good piece out today about what an introvert he is. Yeah, you can how, you could feel that. Absolutely. This process had to be so grueling for him. I'll tell you what, watching him cements for me my real lack of desire to ever run because I just think I would look like that all the time. Like somebody <laughs> shoot me. I can't do this anymore. Um, so I, I think he's a good person. Certainly the most um, substantive candidate on the Republican side. I mean, he had page after page after page of policy proposals. And well, that's just... a that's a good transition into our next segment. We're going to talk about in the suit. We're going to talk about education policy, including some of the presidential candidates' um, education policy proposals. talked a little bit before about how frustrating it is that education is not coming up in debates much. And so we thought we would spend some time in the suit today talking about what is out there with the candidates, but even more than that, just our perspective on uh, what should be being discussed in in the education context. And we're very lucky to have several um, great teachers and other people in the field of education who listen to our show a lot. So I want to start off by saying to you guys, hey, uh, you're the experts, we're not. And so we're probably going to have a conversation that you think is woefully inadequate today. I know um, being raised by a teacher, and my sister is also a teacher, that uh, they'll both listen to this conversation and, and highlight all the things that we're getting wrong. Um, but I think that's sort of step one to moving forward as a country on a conversation about education. I think because we all got one, we feel like we're experts. That's true. Like, we went to school, so surely we know how school should work. And maybe if we could just admit that that's not so correct, 
that would be helpful. Well, I do think this, and I've been meaning to 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 share this sort of kind of epiphany aha moment I've had on a while on pantsuit politics, which is I actually had this sort of breakthrough when I was having a discussion with someone about criminal justice reform and be, quote unquote being anti-police. And I think it applies in education. I think what happens a lot in our discussions about political policy, education, um, criminal justice reform, healthcare, when I say, um, I think the system. I think the system is flawed. I think education is failing. I think healthcare is failing. I think criminal justice system is failing. What people within the system hear is, "You think I'm failing?" Like this happens a lot. I am, come from a long line of educators. My grandmother um, was an educator for decades. My mother is a quote unquote media specialist at a loan at an intermediate school. Um, my great aunts were teachers. Lots of teachers, and you know they get so defensive because you say I don't think it's working well enough and they hear you're not doing a good job and I think that's we really have to just before we have any conversation about these big topics say look please don't get defensive I believe that you are doing the best you can within the parameters set for you I really do that's not to say that there aren't you know bad apple teachers bad apple cops bad apple doctors like we all acknowledge that but sometimes the problems are bigger than just, quote, unquote, a few bad apples. There are systematic problems. But we are n- in no way, sure, at least I personally, when I'm talking about all these big systematic problems, am never placing the blame at the feet of the individuals trying to do the best they can within these systems. You guys didn't set them up. You're just trying to function within them. And so I think that that is just such a sort – I kind of had this aha moment when I thought, oh, that is why we can't get anywhere because everybody gets so defensive – and says, well, it's not my fault. Everything's, you know, if there's nothing wrong, I'm doing the best I can. And that's, you absolutely are doing the best you can, you know, but that doesn't mean that there are still not some systematic problems that need to be addressed. And so I want to give that just disclosure up front, especially with regards to education. I think by and large, teachers are out there working their butts off, doing the best they can, um, the majority of the time. And when I say, you know, if I have problems with the education system, it is certainly not because I don't think teachers are trying hard enough. That is not even an item issue on my list of concerns, not even close. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a really good way to frame the conversation. I would also say that I I think it would be good if we could just like establish a few more things up front. I don't see education as a partisan issue Mm-mm. at all. Now, I think there is an interesting discussion to have about the role of federal government versus state government in terms of education. But by and large, I, I just don't get having conversations about education in stark partisan terms. Mm-hmm. All of those things, all of the partisan divisions about education go to funding. So, Funding teachers' pensions, for example, um, in state government, funding from the Department of Education and all of the parameters that the Department of Education imposes on schools in order to provide that funding. Those things are important, but I think that highlights for me what is so frustrating about what you hear from candidates on education, because let me say this by analogy. I get annoyed in conversations about the Affordable Care Act because what you hear from Republicans all the time is, well, we're going to repeal and replace it. Okay, with what? <laughs> like, I, the cool, 
with what? What are we going to do? Um, and, and there's never an answer. And from the Democratic side, it's like, well, we're going to build on the Affordable Care Act. Okay, what does that mean? Because fundamentally, it's great to provide people with health insurance. No one's really mad about their health insurance. They're mad about the skyrocketing cost of health care. So until you fix how much drugs cost, how much it costs to be in the hospital, how much it costs to see a physician, and you fix it in a way that still provides for innovation in the medical field and excellent patient care that's delivered quickly, um, I mean, so what if people mm. are insured? And I don't mean to make light of that. Like, that is an important thing. But we're, I feel like we're talking around the center of that problem. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about education. Like... We're talking around the center of what is here in 2016, what is the point of schools? Mm -hmm. Like, what are we trying to accomplish with schools? And I know in our um, kind of holiday wish list episode, Sarah, you started talking about how you think that's a question that deserves some um, rethinking. Yeah, I this I think one of the, honestly, some of the best discussions I've heard about that have been on one of my favorite podcasts, This American Life. They've done several really amazing episodes. One in particular that was with regards to discipline in schools. And I I don't want to rehash them. I, I will put them in the show notes, this one particular episode. But it was sort of like, what are we doing? Are we training just to, on the most fundamental level, like, why do we suspend people for not coming to school? Why do, why do we kick them out of school for not coming to school? Why do we use, you know, when, when all the research says negative reinforcements don't work, why do we continue to do them? Are we training them to survive, particularly in, in lower income minority areas? Are we teaching these kids to question a system that treats them unfairly? Or are we teaching them to survive within a system that treats them unfairly? What are we doing? Are we teach? Are we trying to um, teach kids to thrive in an economy vocationally? Are we trying to teach kids to solve the problems of this economy? I mean, it's there. It's a big. It's a macro question, and it goes as big as like, what is the point of the public school system? Down to micro, why why are we doing everything within the public school system? It reminds me of. One of my favorite people um, I've ever, one of the sort of pioneers of natural birth, at one point said, stopped back and said, we're not going to do anything until we have a reason for why we're doing it. You know, down to, you know, every step in the process, why do we do it this way? Who does it serve? Who does it help? Who does it leave out? I mean, these are big questions. I just think that really with our education system, there's a really great TED Talk that talks about, you know, we have an education system built on the industrial age, and we don't live in that age anymore. We just don't. You know, we had a, a school system built to make good little factory workers, but we don't need factory workers anymore. So I think it's just there's some really big questions out there. There are, and I think those questions deserve attention across the spectrum of students as mm-hmm. well, because... In addition to seriously leaving behind students who aren't thriving in our current system, I think students who are thriving are being sort of hooked on um, hooked on achievement. I mean, yep. that's an expression I've used about myself in the show before. I think 
all the way through school, I got really good at school. Yep. That's what I was good at school. Mm-hmm. And as soon as life ran out of GPA or gold stars, I was sort of like, what am I? Mm-hmm. I and I think that's a really common problem. And if you look at where the economy is going, so if we think of, you know, the first question is, as you said, is school supposed to prepare us to be successful, meaning um, lucrative in the economy, right? Um, If you look at where the economy is going, I think adaptability is like the main characteristic that we need to be Um, providing students with access to and like we're not doing that no and i mean i have a child within the public school system right now it's a great our city school system is really wonderful i don't have too many complaints but you know i don't know if what we're doing i i feel like like i said i don't know if what we're doing is really raising kids with well, I, I really, my kid is very lucky. Like, they do a lot of really great things at his school. They do coding. They do a, tons of creative arts and things that I am very happy with that really speak to that. And it's so tough because if you have a public school system in which you have 25 kids in a room with one teacher, like there's no scenario in which she can't kind of... There has to be like good little, there has to be a good little soldier component in which we're raising kids to follow the rules and stand in line and be quiet. Because what else are you going to do with 25 first graders in a room? Like that's chaos if you don't have a a component of that in an elementary school. But I think, I think it's less, I mean, I think there's just almost a, a structural issue that we have a structure that's not... The structure itself is not adaptable. It's it's a difficult to adapt to each individual kid's sort of path and component. Like I kind of one thing I've always thought about is what really bothers me is the way in which we talk about public school system that homeschoolers are sort of these they're out they're outside the system, but they're not. They're not out. They're a part of our education system, a growing part of our education system. And we sort of need to talk about that, right? We maybe need to even listen to them. Maybe they have solutions. Um, I mean, I know a friend of mine in Lexington does a really amazing thing. Her kids are in Latin school. So they go to school three days a week and they're home with her two days a week. So they have like, there's a lot of adaptability within that framework. And until we acknowledge that there is this sort of demand and there are other solutions out there I feel like we just keep trying to make an old framework work instead of saying okay well maybe we need to start rethinking the framework hey everyone I've been on the go recently Phoenix Kansas City Chicago if you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home you have an Airbnb Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. We use our phones for everything at this point, but did you know that you can use it for some sexy me time? Don't worry, your fantasies are safe with Dipsy. Just don't forget to use your headphones. 
Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library, a fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time. Explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. My son Oliver is almost two. The desire for more hours in the day has never been more real for me in my life. An extra hour for reading, for sleeping, for working, for playing. I could use any of it. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to then make it a priority. Therapy can help you figure that out, help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Just last week, my mom actually asked me about my experience with BetterHelp after hearing ads like this one for it. And I'm telling you what I told her. BetterHelp was the perfect solution for me in a time of my life when I had too many plates to juggle, but still very much needed to talk to someone about the experience of keeping all those plates in the air. BetterHelp made therapy easy and accessible right when those were qualities I needed most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a very brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Yeah, my daughter, I, I never thought I would consider anything other than public education. Um, my daughter goes to a Montessori preschool right now, and it's amazing. I mean, what she is mm-hmm. learning is amazing. And what I love most about it is that she is not memorizing anything. Right. She understands. Like, she woke up the other morning, and I said, what do you want to do, Jane? And she said, I want to make a collage like Matisse. You know, so it's not like she just memorized some painting that they looked at at school, yeah. right? Like, she understood. And and in terms of math, like, she not only knows that one plus one is two, she understands what that means, right? She can grab things and show you what that means. And that's the thing. That's what really bugs me for this other sort of flashpoint that gets people so riled up. Like, my son is learning, like, the Common Core math standards this sort of quote-unquote singapore math and it's so amazing like i wish people would just take a breath and like i don't it doesn't make sense to me but i can see and there's a lot of times like i see it and i'm like that doesn't make sense to me that's not although i sort of intuitively did a singapore math a little bit and that's sort of how i do it i just don't do it very well but it's like I can see the what they're doing and I can see the way that he is learning completely differently. I can see the way that he's like learning the concepts behind it and learning 
this totally different framework for math, which what I felt like I did was just memorize, memorize, memorize. Because what I used to always say is like, I can do it that class, but don't ask me to apply it next semester. I've forgotten it all. And that's what I can see is so different about how he's learning. And I hate it that people are so coming so down hard, down hard on this like sort of common cat, common core new math system. It's like this, I feel like it's just uh, without really giving it a chance because in my experience with him, as far as math in particular is concerned, it's been really great. I don't know enough about it to have a strong opinion, but, but here are the things that I feel strongly about. First, I don't think that I am so amazing that, that my, the way I was educated can't be improved on. Word. Like, I just don't understand being against, um, anything that's different than what you did in school. I think that's bizarre. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would hope that it continues to evolve and get better. Yeah. Um, I don't feel threatened by that in any way. I think that's exciting. The second thing is, I think if you don't like what your children are being taught, you should like go to a PTA meeting and learn about it instead of taking to social media to trash it. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is the whole common core discussion gets me fired up because people talk about it. And, and Marco Rubio is a person who fires me up about this because he likes to trash common core. That That is just an expression that has been tainted. Mm-hmm. As federal overreach, when in fact, Common Core standards were developed by governors Mm -hmm. working together voluntarily to set some standards because they're concerned about the state of education in the United States. Now, I am not a person who loves testing. I think we are testaholics in this Mm -hmm. country. I think we are putting an unbelievable and unfair level of pressure on our teachers and depriving them in some cases of the opportunity to do very much teaching because of all this testing. So it's not like I'm pro common core. What I am against is arguing about education in an uneducated way and pretending like common core is something that it isn't. Right. Right. I think that with regards to education in general, it it really is in this weird overlap between like you said like personal experience and there's really nothing personal than the the way you were educated plus in particular the education of your child and listen I understand the desire for your child to have the best and I I mean I really understand that I just feel like we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt and I will say I'm not going to speak for all teachers I'm going to speak for my the teacher's Um, in my life and my mom, because she has to love me so I can call her out on my podcast. There's in her and my grandmother, there's a lot of parent blaming. And, you know, I feel like in these discussions, there's like, well, it's all the parents fault and the parents are all it's all the teachers fault. And can with regards to the sort of the polarization in these discussions, we have got to acknowledge that neither side is the enemy. Like we both want what's best. And we both have, parents have different um, sort of limits they're working within, just like teachers do. But I really, I don't know how we move forward if we both can't acknowledge that we all want what's best for the kids. And how we really work through the things that parents aren't happy with and that teachers hold responsibility for and the things that teachers aren't happy with that parents hold responsibility for. I just, it's upsetting to me that I, that 
the discussion can get so far away from what's actually benefiting the children. And I, and, and I think with education too, it's so difficult. I mean, you really do have so many parties at stake. You have administrators, you have regulators, you have politicians, you have parents, you have teachers. I remember Michelle Lee, the sort of infamous superintendent of the DC public schools had a, had an, I don't know if it's still going, had a nonprofit at one time when she said, you know, the only people I care about is the kids. Nobody actually fought. Everybody thinks they're fighting for the kids, but really everybody has their own priorities and their own um, sort of values that they're fighting for. And I think really it's, it's such a difficult situation because you just have so many stakeholders and there's, so much at play. Well, also, what does fighting for the kids mean? I mean, mm-hmm. I think about this as a parent all the time. So I, I'm in this meeting about kindergarten options, and I'm, I'm listening to some information being um, discussed, and then suddenly the conversation goes to, I mean, ultimately you're setting the groundwork for what college they're going to get into. <sighs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm not with you on that. I mean, for me, the the objective of kindergarten is to put my child on a path where she's curious, where she's um, developing skills that will allow her to be happy mm-hmm. and a good citizen, you know, and participatory. I'm not thinking about the Ivy League here along with finger paint. I'm just not. And yeah. and I think we've kind of lost our minds about a lot of this. Absolutely. And, and that's another thing that bothers me about the discussion. Going back to the 2016 race, there's all this talk about college. And it's not that I think student debt is not a problem or that we shouldn't take a look at how to provide access to higher education to more people, perhaps. I think I think we're kind of missing the point again. By the time people get to college age, we've lost a lot of people, right? Like, I don't know where the money comes from to do two years of free tuition, as as Bernie Sanders has gotten a lot of traction in talking about. If we actually have that money, I'd like to see it poured into early childhood education. So totally true. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if, if we're going to talk about providing people with more access to higher education, I think maybe like four year bachelor's programs, that's not the answer for everyone. Um, Well, and and I think talking about a framework that needs reevaluating. Yes. I read a really terrifying article in Rolling Stone about a year and a half ago. There was a really great one about how basically higher education is the next bubble. It's the next, it's the next economic bubble because it costs too much. Uh, they're not getting, you're not getting your values worth. Um, and there need, needs to be real, I, I mean, I don't see how anybody, if you just look at the statistics on the rising cost of tuition, which way outpaces inflation, not to mention, I just have my trouble wrapping my brain around nonprofit education institution with billion dollar endowments. It's just, there's a lot of that that doesn't set right with me. You know, I wrote a really, and we'll link it in the show notes, I wrote a really, um, I would I would argue it went a little viral. I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post in which I've said basically, like, I'm not sure I'm going to send my kids to college. Like, I used to, six years ago, you asked me, do your kids have, are you going to make your kids, like, are your kids going to go to college right out of high school, basically? I would have said, absolutely, yeah, they're going to go straight to college. And now I'm like, 
Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I wouldn't make them. It's not – I don't feel like it's essential anymore. Um, if it continues the way it costs, I don't know how we could possibly afford it. I mean, I did a cost calculation. I talk about this in the article where it was like, how much should you be saving? And I didn't even have Felix yet. I had a, I had a, one fewer child, one less child. I don't know which grammatically is correct. But um, – and it was like $2,600 a month. <laughs> Something so outrageous. It was laughable. And I think that, you know, I think a lot about, I've heard a lot about gap years for kids. Would I like my sons to go out and explore? And I'm not going to set 17-year-olds free to just do what they want. But, you know, within structured environments to learn more about themselves before they went to college to really figure out. And I had such an idyllic college experience. I would love that for my my children. And I loved going to trains and I had such a great experience. But, I mean, there's just a part of me that thinks like, that's not how it works for everybody, and I'm not sure that's even always the best option. I don't. Not that I don't think my kids should eventually go to college. I think the the econ the the statistics as far as the economics of how much more you earn when you have a college degree are pretty clear. But I just don't know if this idea of like you go to college and then you immediately go to four years of undergrad and then pretty much really you go to grad school if you want any kind of real sustained earning power. It's just the the right framework either and doesn't deserve a lot of reevaluation. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Traditionally, the advice would be pick one. But thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ugh, ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka bra-plum. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. That's code PODCAST15. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think it absolutely has to be reevaluated, especially because we're devaluing each level of education as more and more people get that education, even though there's mm-hmm. crushing debt associated with getting it. And if you look at some studies like, what's being taught at each level keeps kind of going down a few notches because people aren't ready for it. And that's why I think if we're going to have mm-hmm. this infusion of federal dollars into our education systems, which we can debate whether that should happen or not. Um, but if it's happening, I, I would put it early on because that's when you're really building the foundation 
of what you need to know. So I guess we should talk about that for a second, because this is where the campaigns um, get all exercised. Like, what what should the Department of Education be doing? Um, I'm kind of feeling myself taking a libertarian turn in some ways on this, or maybe like a modified libertarian term, as I tend to go. Um, I think if the federal government has a role in education, which I don't really have a problem with, it's hard for me to name things that I think are a lot more important. Um, it, it, should it not be in the nature of leveling the playing field a little bit? Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't like this system currently of schools competing, essentially competing with one another for federal dollars. I don't like the idea of tests measuring where dollars go. I I almost think that like the federal government should do some kind of calculation, like look at what funding schools are receiving compared to one another across the country. And then look at the pot of money available for the Department of Education to spend and just figure out how to create as even a playing field per student as possible. Yeah. Just do the math. Well, you know, if we're talking, I will tell you that what that re- sort of reminds me of, though, is I I think one of the biggest, when we talk about how dollars are spent and who gets what dollars, and right, the biggest, one of the biggest issues in education is it's not, it's not fair, right? I mean, the tax dollars in an inner city school that they, the resources they have to spend are going to be, you know, tiny compared to something like a upper income suburban district and there was a supreme court decision which if i'd been on top of things i would have looked it up that basically you know several years ago said there's no constitutional right to education and so there's no constitutional issue with this unfair apportionment of funds just think is sort of what you're getting to with the federal dollars and I, honestly i think that I, I wish there was a way to challenge that decision because i think that until we decide that there is a constitutional right to a certain level of education then how are we ever going to try to it's not even just about, you know, we're having a sort of privileged conversation right now, right? We're talking about getting the best education, the best system going for improving on the system we have and getting better outcomes from the system we have. But a bigger issue on the ground right now is that the system we have is failing a huge proportion of the students within it. And not just in a, we wish that they were learning you know, it was more adaptable and they were better faced to the economy as in that they are not getting the most basic level of education. And that's a well, huge that's what issue. I mean. Like rather than the federal government creating this giant bureaucracy and deciding what the standards are going to be and creating all kinds of tests to measure who's coming up to the standards or not. Like I would rather it just say, okay, when I do the math, I see that elite suburban school over here has X dollars per student And using the federal budget, I can take inner city school that's struggling up to that level per student, you know, in terms of Mm -hmm. funding. Do it. That's fine with me. Like, I'm I'm in a system where our local property taxes have created excellent schools. So I'm fine with my federal dollars being sent somewhere else to help those students have a fairer platform. I mean, I don't know. That's probably the least Republican thing I've ever said, but there you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we had a, a listener bring up this another episode of This American Life that's really fabulous. We'll also link to that the issue 
the argument within this that this one particular expert was making is that the issue with inner city schools, with failing schools, particularly in minority districts, is not necessarily even it on the surface, yes, it is a lack of resources. But what has been shown historically to work over and over again, the only thing that basically helps this sort of unfair distribution of resources, these these failing uh, primarily minority schools is integration and also particularly relevant because in this episode they to our state Kentucky it was Louisville was one of the Louisville and there was a place in I believe North Carolina I don't remember right off the top of my head at which where they had successfully stuck with this integration plan over decades and it's shown to really make a difference you have to bring in Basically, you have to bring in the white kids if you want the school to do better. It's not forced integration to most of these places. It's, you know, they, they shadowed one of these um, sort of marketing directors for the, the school that was basically trying to sell. Oh, it was in um, Providence, Rhode Island. It's coming to me now. Um, where they were really selling basically these these charter schools within inner cities to white suburban kids, trying to get them to come into these 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 school districts whereas the you know the black kids the sad part was the black kids within these neighborhoods were like in a lottery trying desperately to get into these schools but that this this sort of integration really was the only thing that happened and I think if there's a role for the federal government to play I think that has to be considered at least as part of it well that seems like the starting place to me I mean we could debate vouchers all day I would rather us mm-hmm. just like all sit down and say, wait a second, what are we, what are we trying to get at with school? Mm-hmm. And then what is mm-hmm. the role? Whose responsibility is that? Right. And and what role does the federal government play in that? And then from there, exactly what you said, why are we doing everything that we're doing and then move forward? Mm-hmm. And I think if we did that, we would come up with a whole lot more money for schools. You know, teachers, I do think are grossly underpaid. Oh, I mean, Lord. and under That's so much even. pressure. And so I, I, we can do better than this. That's the point to me. We can do yeah. better than this. Yeah. And we're not going to if education is never a debate question. And that if the candidates' education policies all come down to these really um, politically charged and really kind of special interest categories of issues. Well, and can I just say, I was having a conversation with. Um, a local legislator and I was making an argument like you know we have to do we're doing nothing and something is better than nothing and his response was well can't we do better than just something and I (laughs) and I feel like that's sort of where we get stalled sometimes in these discussions where it feels like well there has to be a better way maybe there is but if we can't get there then it doesn't matter like something when you're talking about <laughs> a complicated democracy at ours and when you're talking about something as complicated with as many stakeholders as education, then something is better than nothing. Unfortunately, though, I do feel like what happens a lot in our school district is they, it, you know, it's every year. You, well, not in my school district, in the school district I grew up in. There was like everything there. Let's try this testing. Let's try this school district. Okay, now we're going to try blocks of time. Now we're going to try a fall break, a, an extended calendar. And it's like change, change, change. But it seems like there's always change on the periphery and never any real 
fundamental change, I guess, is the problem, though. Well, I agree with you that perfect is the enemy of progress in terms of education, for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, and, And I think the stakeholder point is just a really important one. The fact that people have such entrenched interests, but we have those interests without examining why we have them. And some of it I think is just a lot of ego and sort of if long division this way was good enough for me, then by God, it's going to be good enough for my child. And I don't know. I just think that the American dream of hoping for better for the next generation ought to give you some room to to see mm-hmm. progress in our school systems and and the same team concept I think is the right one that parents and teachers and administrators need to all be working together and we've got to find a way to allocate dollars that promotes that too so I hope that we did a little bit of justice to this topic we I mean we could do like 15 episodes on education because there's so much to say and very few people are out there saying it mm-hmm But next up, we're going to move on to the heels and talk about the Oscars, which is a welcome release and less stressful topic than education policy. So the Oscars are coming up this coming weekend, Beth. They are. And, and, you know, speaking of education, the Oscars always make me feel like um, not high society, to be honest with you, because usually I have not (laughs) seen many of the contenders and don't have a lot of desire to. (laughs) Well, I am sort of, um, I like list. So the Oscars Mm. appealed to me at one point before I had children. I watched all, and I'm I'm also just a movie person. I was an only child. I watched a lot of movies, okay? Um, And I watched all of the American Film Institute's Top 100. And when I watched all of those, I decided to go back and watch every Best Picture winner ever. Wow. And then once I did that, then I decided, well, now I have to keep it up. So now I'm going to watch every nominee before the show. Well, then I had some more kids, and that didn't work out. So I think the only Best Picture winner I still haven't seen, though, I kind of I didn't keep up, you know, once I started having all these minions. So I haven't seen the, um, the was it The Artist, the black and white silent film? That's the only Best Picture winner I don't think I've ever seen. And let me just tell you, the odds-on favorite this year is The Revenant, and I will not be seeing The Revenant. I do not want to see The Revenant. I do not want to see Leonardo DiCaprio march around the cold for three hours looking for an Oscar. I'm not into it. I refuse I feel to see the same. it. There is not enough money on earth that you could pay me to sit through that. No desire. No. no desire. Now, no. I would watch The Martian again and again. Okay, I haven't seen that one. I've seen Spotlight. Highly recommend. Really good. I've seen The Big Short, which we both loved. Also about the financial crisis. We were yes, both big amazing. fans of that. Loved it. I've seen Brooklyn, which is just delightful. If you like just if you like just delightful movies that are not gonna like rip your heart out or challenge you with these very dramatic visuals or emotional roller coasters, how just Brooklyn. It's just a wonderful film. Room, which not delightful. <laughs> I don't know if for anybody who read the book or knows the uh plot of room it is a woman who 
is raising the child of her rapist who's kept her in a room for like 11 years, kidnapped her and built, you know, sort of based on these awful cases that we read about in the news sometimes. So not delightful. Really good. think um, Brie Larson is probably going to win Best Actress for that one, but not delightful. But good. And I've seen, um, I haven't seen The Martian. I haven't seen Bridge of Spies. And I think that's all of them. Well, The Martian I saw with my husband because um, I was 16 when Goodwill Hunting came out and just have, you know, Matt, ha- Matt Damon has had my I heart love forever since then. You like apples? You like apples? I mean, it will never get old for me ever. So despite it being a science-y movie, um, I agreed to go because of Matt Damon. And it was terrific. Now, it was not a comedy or a musical, so I don't really understand um, where the Golden Globes were going with that. But super smart, um, really interesting. He basically carries the movie on his shoulders all by himself and does it beautifully. So um, it, it was actually very entertaining. Oh, Mad Max Fury Road. I've seen that. That's the other one. And it's really good. It's very actiony. <laughs> it's very big and explosive. But I mean, it's just an incredibly visually interesting. It's got this really cool sort of feminist plot line with Charlize Theron. Um, it's really, I, I, I recommend Mad Max. I think it's really great. I don't think it should win Best Picture, but it was the really good. The big story this year of the Oscars is the lack of diversity in terms of nominees. Mm-hmm. And I think they have to be really careful in how they produce the show because I'm afraid they're going to try to overcorrect for that or not even overcorrect, but correct in a way that makes it worse. Well, I think they have Chris Rock. So I think they're hosting. I mean, I th- like as far as sort of a built in insurance policy, I mean, he can say whatever he wants. And it's not not just because he's black, but because Chris Rock is incredibly intelligent and incredibly thoughtful and insightful, I feel like, on the issues of race within the entertainment industry. So I feel like he will do he would that he will carry them through well. But I don't think the I think the issue with the Oscars is not the racism only of the nominating process. It's the racism within the entire industry, which is a problem. It's that they're. It's not only that they're not nominating enough really great black performances. Is that there are not enough great black performances. That's the problem. Well, I think there are enough to get more nominations than we're seeing, though. I mean, it's right, right. But I mean, I feel like it's just this is systemic. It's not just you're ignoring. I mean, it's a it's a systemic problem. Can I also say that I think the Oscars themselves? I don't know. I. I'm kind of over award shows and turning on my television to watch people who are fabulously wealthy celebrate one another oh, and, so and take home. That's why it's only Tina Fey and Amy Poehler should host them all. I'll watch them all if they host. But, you know, and I love them. But even with them, I'm just like with the with the dresses and the red carpet and the the swag bags. It just feels gross. I don't know. Is a country yeah, that's like know. as just angry do, I... as people are angry about wealth right now, like down for another 10 years of these award shows? I don't know. I don't know. A country that loves the Kardashians as much as true. they do, that's I would true. say yes. We are a country of paradox, if nothing else. We are. That's what I love about us. I like the Oscars because I like, I really like film. I really like film criticism. Um, I think that culture has a lot of interesting things to say. And despite the problems within the industry as as a whole, there are really 
I mean, I think that the power of, of pop culture to comment on these things and to, you know, sort of shine a light into our darkest places, both with, you know, nonfiction and documentaries and fiction is really powerful and something I very much believe in. And so, um, I, I don't think that'll ever go away. I certainly hope it won't because I think that's a powerful medium that can do things that something like a, a meet the press can't. Well, I want to thank our own powerful medium that can do amazing things. Nicholas Holland for producing pantsuit politics <laughs> and all of you for listening and continuing to be part of our community. You can follow us on Facebook at pantsuit politics and Twitter at pantsuit politic. And until Friday's episode, keep it in one, y'all.